Good morning, everybody. How are we? Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. That's what we're covering this morning. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. <coughs> if you need a Bible, raise your hand and Danny will get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take one in the back. Put your name on it. It belongs to you. That's our gift to yourselves. So Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Now, as, as we've seen in the, uh, the opening teachings of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter for two reasons. The first was to thank the people in Philippi for the generous gift that they had sent to him in Rome. Now, remember, Paul is under house arrest. Um, he had the opportunity to rent his own home in Rome. He was chained to Roman guards, and he needed the money to basically pay his rent, pay, put food on the table. So this was a great gift to help him to do that. The second reason he wrote this letter is to address a disagreement between two ladies within this church. Not this church, but church in, 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 in Philippi. Dangerous to catch, make eye contact there. So, and it was a disagreement that had the potential to do serious harm to the unity of their fellowship there in Philippi. And he told them back in chapter 1, verse 27, he told them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there needed to be this unity within the Philippian church. It needed to be there. They needed to live it out. Because if they didn't, then how were they going to reach the lost in their community? How were they going to be a good example? And then in the first 11 verses, and we saw this in Danny's teaching last week of chapter 2, Paul began to speak about the things that were stopping this unity. Things like selfish ambition and pride. And such things will bring to any church conflict and it will bring division. And just like the, the potential it had to do in Philippi, it will destroy our witness for Christ. And it will also rob us of our joy. There's nothing as bad as being uh, arguing with somebody. You know, it, it really does destroy our joy, doesn't it? And this is why Paul has been teaching them in, chap in the first few verses of, of chapter 2 the importance of humility and obedience. And he did that by pointing us to Christ. How Jesus came and how he humbled himself. In fact, he humbled himself to the point of death. Death on a cross. And you could not get a more humiliating death than that. And conflict within a church body nearly always can be traced back to a lack of love, a lack of humility. And after a life of complete dis uh, obedience, a life of being the perfect ser a servant, 
Jesus Christ received the very thing that he was not frightened of letting go. His divine glory and honor. And when we as believers humble ourselves, considering other people more important than us, then it's going to bring glory to God, isn't it? But not only that, it's going to strengthen our fellowship. We're going to encourage one another by doing that. Now, none of us are going to disagree with this. Absolutely none of us. But how can it be done? How can it be done? How are we going to apply Paul's teaching to our lives? How are we going to to serve the Lord without, without grumbling, without conflict, without complaining? And that's what this section of scripture now is all about this morning. Paul explaining to us how we ought to live in the light of everything that Christ has done for, for you and I, which is a lot, isn't it? Okay, so we're gonna, I'm going to read the text, verses 12 to 18. Um, yeah, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's good news, isn't it? God will give us the strength to do this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That can be difficult. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a... So this is Paul describing the world, describing our society. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word, of, the, the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not ruin in vain or labor in vain. Sorry, run in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, we, we want to live lives like this, Lord. We want to serve you. We want to put others before ourselves. But, Lord, we know that we can't do it in our own strength. So, Jesus, I ask that these words would cut through our hearts this morning and that we would not only hear them, that we would not only contemplate on these words this morning, on your words, Lord, but that we would live them out every single day of our lives. Amen. Okay, so we see the transition this morning uh, by the use of Paul's word of therefore in verse 12. And as I said before, every time you see a therefore in the Bible, you must ask yourself, why is it there? Because it always represents the conclusion of an argument. In that the instructions that follow are based upon what Paul has just explained. And that's the first few verses of chapter 12, uh, sorry, chapter 2. So in the light of Christ's obedience and humility, in the light of Christ's example of, of servanthood, Paul says, therefore, my beloved. Now, he is about to command the Philippians to follow his instructions. But before he does, he emphasizes his love for them. So before you try and speak into somebody's life, maybe in an attempt to bring correction, 
it is always a good idea to first communicate to them that they are loved and valued by you. So love should be our motivation in these circumstances. Not revenge, not one-upmanship, but love. And before you bring correction to anyone, examine your own heart. It is so, so important. So therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my ab absence. So here is the command that Paul is giving. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So is Paul telling them that they have to work out their own salvation? And we know, of course not. And I know you know that. Because that would be an obvious contradiction of, of Scripture. We do not work to receive or maintain our salvation. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. So this has nothing to do with works. And Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God so that nobody could boast. So what Paul is saying here is that we need to work out the salvation that we already have. In other words, we need to live out our faith. We need to put into practice, we need to live out the salvation that we already have in Jesus Christ. You have to live like Christians. The New Living uh, Translation says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Paul had just commanded them in chapter 1, verse 27. He said, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said the same thing to the church in Ephesus. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of your calling. Also to the church in, uh, to the Colossians, Paul encouraged them, walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. So you and I as believers must be willing to do this. Our lives must be consistent with what the gospel says how we should live. If you're a Christian, then start living like one. That's what Paul is telling the people in, in Philippi. So our external actions must mirror the fact that we, all of us, are a new creation in Christ. It's not an option. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This isn't a call for us to be living in fear, to be trembling. But a fear, a healthy fear of us as individual Christians not living out our faith. So we should be fearful of doing that or not doing that. A true servant wants nothing more than to please his master. And I want my life to be continually pointing to Jesus Christ, that I belong to him. Now, I know me. And I know that I don't have it in me to live such a life. I cannot work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I cannot walk in a manner worthy in the Lord. For that to happen, I, we all are, we're going to need help. So in verse 13, Paul reminds us 
that we don't have to supply anything. We don't have to rely on our own intrigue or our own strength. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Now, that's, that's great news for me. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God will not only give me the will and the desire to live a life that glorifies him, but he will also give me the strength. He will enable me to live a life for him. Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 2.10, he said, for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has a plan for your life. He has given you a desire to do what is right. But he's also given you the ability to do just that. Yet too often we allow our own self-evaluations, our past failures to determine our effectiveness in God's plan for us. I cannot do that because. You know, how many of us say that? I've often said it. When what we should be saying is, and Paul will write this in in chapter 4, excuse me, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God will never ask you to do anything without first equipping you with desire and the ability to carry that out. And that includes the spiritual gifts that he gives us. And now Paul gives his second command, verse 14. And he does it by comparing our lives, the life of a believer, with those who live in the world. So verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's not easy. It's not, it is, it's, it's not easy. And if there's one man I feel sorry for in the Bible, it's Moses. So this guy, he had it tough. It was nonstop moaning and complaining. You know, I worked in the city council and, and it was worse than that, you know. <laughs> so God had brought his people out of Egypt. He had promised to supply for their every need. Yet all they did was backbite and complain. Especially the Bible refers to them in numbers as the mixed multitude. Those who have married, there was intermarriage between the Egyptians and uh, the Jews. They complained about Moses' leadership. They complained about the blandness of the food. And they went as far as to give Moses a shopping list for the food that they wanted. Fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions. It was ridiculous. They complained about the quality of the water. In fact, their grumbling and complaining earned them 40 years in the wilderness. And a lot of us do it. We complain about the weather. We complain, we worry about our financial problems. We open the fridge and complain. And this word grumbling used by Paul in verse 14 can be translating as, as whispering or private complaining. So just muttering under your breath. Oh, we're all guilty, aren't we, guys? 
we all smile and nod our heads. But complaining, what it does, it reveals our hearts. It shows us our selfish desire. It's you telling you how hard done by you are. That you deserve better. Listen to what David said in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, our sin. We don't deserve anything. We deserve nothing. In fact, we deserve death. Yet by God's grace, we are justified. Hell, Romans 3.24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And for that, we should be thankful for. God will meet all your needs. Not your wants, your needs. All of them. So guys, we have nothing to be anxious about. Why worry? What's the point? So to complain about your circumstance is to complain about what God is doing in your life. That's it, isn't it? It's that simple. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. To dispute is to argue, to say to someone, well, I know better than you. The Christians in Philippi were struggling with this. They were murmuring, complaining about each other, and it was leading to arguments. And it was affecting their unity. And it was robbing them of the joy, and it was stealing them of the witness for Christ. So look at verse 15. So he says, do all things without grumbling or spewing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul describes society, he describes this, this world as crooked. And that means like morally corrupt, twisted and perverted. And he says, among whom you shine. So he doesn't instruct us to isolate ourselves. He doesn't say, look, lads, run to the hills. This generation is corrupt. But to live in a way that is so radically different from society that people will take notice. There's to be no complaining or moaning, but blameless. We are to be blameless, innocent. We are to be absolutely honest in all our dealings, all our dealings. Now, last summer, my beautiful wife, Anna, and she is a good driver. <laughs> she was driving past the Holy Cross Church in, in Tremor. Um, actually, can we turn off those two heaters up here, Danny, these ones? It's, it's getting kind of hot. Thank you, man. So there she was. She was driving past the church, uh, Holy Cross in Tremor, the one on the hill, the big one that you can see from town. And there was a funeral taking place, and there was, there, was, there was cars everywhere. And unfortunately, she managed to, to crash into the hearse. <laughs> now, thank God the coffin wasn't in it at the time. But, you know, these things happen. And because there were so many cars, she couldn't stop. She couldn't park up. But th that's what she told me anyway. <laughs> so after, after leaving the scene of an accident, which I think is illegal, Anna arrives home and she, she, she's in a panic. 
Now, Anna had two options. She could have kept her head down and say nothing. And even if she got caught, she said, what's that? I crashed into a horse. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, my apologies. Here's my credit card. Or she could own up to her crime. She could admit liability and accept the consequences. Now, we're standing in the kitchen. I must admit she was heading to the dark side. <laughs> and I said, no, Anne. I said, be blameless, innocent in all your dealings. Okay, so I didn't quite go like that. But, you know, I rang the church office. I got the undertaker's number. And I rang him, and he was dumbfounded. He was absolutely shocked. He never even considered that someone would ring him and admit that they crashed into his wonderful brand new 182 horse. <laughs> he never considered it. And isn't that such a sad reflection of today's society? And isn't that how the world operates? So we are to live in this world, but not of it which can and does lead to different, difficult situations, difficult decisions to be made. And this world, and we know this, it is not without its temptations. As I said, Anne and I, we could have ignored the horse incident, and we would have been a lot richer for it. But as believers, we are called to stand out as unique and powerful examples to a twisted generation, blameless and honest in all our dealings with people, straight lines in a crooked world. Because, guys, when we do that, people are going to take notice because you're going to stand out. You're going to be the exception. And as Paul says, we're called to be lights of this world. Sorry, lights in this world. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Philippians, they were jeopardizing that. Their grumblings, their infighting, it mirrored more the world than it did of Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. So when we are, we are God's plan whether you like it or not. You are God's plan to reach this crooked and wicked generation. But how are we going to reach them if they see us fighting and arguing among themselves? If they see us living just like the world? It would just make us hypocrites. Jesus told us this, his disciples in John 13, 35, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? By the way we love one another. We attract people to Christ by the manner in which we live and in the way that we love, unconditionally. And that's not easy. And that itself can turn people from darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. So we are to shine as, as lights in the world, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And this word holding fast, it literally means to, to hold forth or to offer up. 
We need to be willing and able to communicate to people why we live as we do. So not only are we to, to be a witness in the way that we, in the manner in which we live our lives, but we're to communicate that. We're to open our mouths and tell them why. I love Jesus. He has redeemed me through his sacrifice on the cross. I trust him and I want to live in the manner that he wants me to. And that is something, church, that I failed to do. Sure, I was honest and I was straight in my dealings with the undertaker. That's not the wrestler. We're going back to the horse. You know, I was honest. We were honest in our dealings. But I failed to give a reason for my actions. I went to his house. I handed over the cash. I shook his hand. In fact, he followed me out into the driveway. He shook my hand again. He said, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that somebody would do this. What an opportunity to share the gospel. What an opportunity I missed. So it's not just about living a life that glorifies God. You must be prepared to give a reason why you live the way you do. Verse 16, second part. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in, or labor in vain. So Paul questions them as to whether his efforts in Philippi were a waste of time. Because all the, all the work, all the time that he had invested into them, into this church, it was being jeopardized. It was being destroyed by two women bickering. And this was a dangerous situation. And if it wasn't brought under control, then there would be nothing left of his work. The church would disappear. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? That the work of God can be undone by, by our pride, by the carnality of just two people. And pride is the root. Pride is the root of all our arguing and complaining. I am right, you are wrong. It's the absence of humility. We cannot afford to underestimate the damaging effect that conflict could have in this church. So we must do everything, guys, everything to avoid it. And we do that by keeping ourselves in check. We have to look in here, look into our own hearts. We are God's witnesses on this earth. We are his representatives. And we have to properly represent him. And that is an absolute incredible responsibility. Thank God for his amazing grace. And now Paul gives himself as an example of a life that was to be lived for Christ. Verse 17. Verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice you all. So notice how Paul is referring to his life as, a, as a, a drink offering. So what he's doing here, he's pointing back to the Old Testament. And a drink offering was the last of three offerings in the Old, Old Testament sacrificial system. 
So you had the burnt offering, the peace offering, and then you had the drink offering. Now, the burnt offering, this sacrifice was carried out by the high priest. So they would sacrifice the animal, they'd throw him up on the altar, and they'd burn him. Burn him till there was absolutely nothing less. Just a pile of ashes. And then the priest would get a wineskin, and he'd pour out the wine on top of the, of the burnt offering. And the wine would just disappear. It would go up in smoke. So Paul wanted his life to be a drink offering. In that he wanted his life to be totally consumed by the will of God. It's incredible, isn't it? That is how he viewed his life. He was pouring himself out for the sake of others. Even if he was executed, Paul could look back with joy, knowing that his life was poured out in service to God. Totally poured out. Here was a man who found joy in the knowledge that he was suffering for Jesus Christ. Joy in the pain and suffering. He said in, in his second letter to Corinth, in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. To Colossians, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. When we give ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, when we live out our faith, following God's will for our lives, then the hardships, the pain, the suffering that we all enjoy, even death itself, it loses its sting. Please don't worry about me. I've never been happier. That's what Paul is writing to these people. Years later, he would make a similar statement, and this would be his last letter, 2 Timothy, just before he was executed. He said, For I am ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul, he gave everything. And now here was a man who was about to make the ultimate sacrifice. His time for departure, it had come. This was his second imprisonment in Rome. He had stood trial, he was found guilty, and the death sentence was passed. Shortly after this letter, Nero, he had his head taken. And he literally poured out his life upon the floor, upon the service to the church. And I love this word departure that he uses. It's the idea of a ship taking up its anchor and setting sail. And he uses this same word in chapter 1 of this letter, verse 23, where he wrote. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. So what's that? Between life and death. He said then that my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is better. I just love this. He describes a Christian's death as a departure, cutting loose from this world and going to the next, going to be with our Father. And now as Paul is remembering his life, and possibly he didn't know at this stage in his first imprisonment, maybe his impending death. So he looks back and he declares, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And isn't that what Paul wanted for the Philippian believers? For them to keep their faith, to fight the good fight, to fight against arguing and bickering, to lift one another up in prayer, in service. 
to be living sacrifices. Verse 18, I'll finish on this. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So this is where I had to ask myself, and it's good that we examine our own hearts and say, is there joy in my sacrifice to the Lord? Is there joy? Is there sacrifice in your life at all? Or have you put your own personal interests before God's will for your life? Paul lived the life of sacrificial joy. So let's serve the Lord without grumbling, without complaining, without backbiting, without arguing. Let's live a life that brings Jesus all the glory. And let's give an answer. Let's be prepared to reply. Let's give an answer for our faith to anyone that may ask. And in any situation that presents itself. Share your faith. Give them a reason. Point them to Jesus. Amen.